Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadee Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today's our Pali Canon and English study group, where we're studying Volume 3, titled Foundations in the Teachings. Here we're going to be studying Chapters 11 through Chapters 20. We start this class with a brief meditation in order to prepare the mind for study. So I'm going to invite all of you guys to join for meditation so that we can prepare the mind to help the mind retain the teachings a bit more as we clear out the mind and kind of top up the mind, bringing it to the middle. If there's any kind of clutter or anything that the mind's holding on to that doesn't involve studying the teachings of the Buddha, this is the time to let that go so that you can focus on learning and understanding and retaining the teachings. So thank you all for being here. I appreciate that you've decided that studying Gautama Buddha's teachings is something that's important for your life. If you'd like to pull up a meditation cushion or a chair or anything like that, we can go ahead and start our meditation. So go ahead and make your lower body comfortable. And if you're on the floor, that probably means putting a cushion under the rear, getting your hips up so that you can lessen that angle at the hips, the knees, and the ankles. If you're in a chair, that means probably your lower body is just kind of nice and stable with maybe your feet flat on the floor or crossed at the ankles, whatever feels best for you. And then place your hands and arms in your lap so that they're nice and comfortable. The muscles shouldn't be engaged. They should just be nice and relaxed. Next, your upper body should be erect. This keeps the mind engaged during meditation. It keeps it attentive, alert, and you're able to train it better that way. Next, you close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Just taking some nice natural breaths. Nothing should be forced or controlled. Just breathe in naturally through the nose, experiencing the full breath, and then exhale through the nose, just gradually experiencing the full breath. Breathing in and out. Arahang Samma Samhuto Makawa Poetang Makawa 
some nice natural breaths experiencing the full breath focusing the mind on the breath wherever you notice that the mind is not on the breath cut that off let it go bring the mind back to the breath breathing in in, out. I'm going to be quiet now, let you do the work, maintaining the focus on the breath. Wherever the mind is aware that it's off the breath, just cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in, and out.
like to make your way out of meditation. Today we're studying chapters 11 through chapters 20. And the way that we do this class is that a student will read the chapter first. And then after the student reads a chapter, I will teach anything that needs to be taught related to the chapter and then we'll open things up for any questions that you guys have related to the chapters if you've been part of this program for any length of time you've probably already downloaded the books and you've been reading them this week or you plan to read them this upcoming week or maybe you're doing both if this is your first time joining us you can actually download these books or take the book and go get it printed or you can order printed copies yourself from Amazon and then you read 10 chapters a week and then we come together as a class and we discuss the chapters first with a student reading then with me sharing any teachings related to that chapter and then opening up for any questions and in this way you're then able to study the words of the Buddha 
rather than relying on hearsay or just the oral tradition or what's been passed down from person to person, rather than just believing what other people have shared with you, what the Buddhist teachings are, by going back to the actual words of the Buddha, you can then learn directly with what the Buddha actually taught during his lifetime. You learn those teachings, you reflect on them, and then you practice them to see the truth for yourself, that it's improving the condition of the mind and improving the condition of your life. This is how you move the mind to this enlightened mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. I can easily share that anyone who is not studying the words of the Buddha would have very little, if any, chance to ever attain enlightenment. Because how would you actually know what the teachings are to actually attain enlightenment if you're not going back to the original source of what the Buddha actually taught? From 2,500 years ago, there's been a tremendous amount of impermanence where it's made this path to enlightenment very murky and very muddy for people to be able to walk this path and actually experience the results of enlightenment. But by going back to the original source teachings from the Pali Canon and having really good quality translations of those teachings, then you can see what did the Buddha actually truly teach. But even then, you're not interested in believing the books. You're not believing what I say. You're not believing what you see written or what the Buddha said. Instead, you're reflecting on those teachings and you're practicing to see the truth for yourself that as you gain this wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, it improves the condition of the mind, improves the condition of your life, moving the mind closer and closer to this enlightened mental state, which is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And then, of course, in addition to learning the teachings and practicing them, part of that practice is making sure you have a regular meditation practice two or three times a day where you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation. And then as needed and as you observe that there's still anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance in the mind, you need to be sure you're also doing loving kindness meditation on a consistent ongoing basis. So. I'll go ahead and turn things over to the students and the moderators specifically. We've got Manal, Basam, and Nick joining us today for moderation. And we'll just progress through each of these chapters, helping you to learn, reflect, and practice on these teachings. One thing I was going to say before we get started with this is if you guys remember where we left off last week in this book, the Buddha was sharing some teachings with us about how to acquire wealth righteously, how to use that wealth to ensure contentedness for ourselves and our family and other aspects of wealth. So this is a continuation of that where now he's going to teach about how our wealth gets depleted and how to accumulate wealth as well. So this is a continuation of what we were studying in the previous chapters last week. Well, a first source is contemplation and the accumulation of the wealth. The first source is contemplation of the wealth. The wealth thus amassed has four sources of contemplation. One, womanization, womanizing. Two, drunkenness, heedlessness. Three, gambling. Four, unwholesome friendship, unwholesome camaraderie, unwholesome, unwholesome companionship, unwholesome camaraderie. Piyagaja. Just as if there was, there were a large reservoir 
with four inlets and four outlets, and the man would close the inlets and open the outlets. And sufficient rain does not fall. One could predict the water in the reservoir to decrease rather than increase. We are gushing. So the wealth thus amassed has four sources of tradition. Womanizing, drunkenness, heedlessness, gambling, unwholesome friendship, unwholesome companionship, unwholesome comradeship. The four sources of accumulation of the wealth. The the wealth, thus amazed, has four sources of accumulation. One avoids womanizing, one avoids drunkenness, heedlessness, one avoids gambling, one cultivates wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome comradeship. Just as if there were a large reservoir with four inlets and four outlets, and the man would open the inlets and close the outlets, and sufficient rain falls, one could predict the water in the reservoir to increase rather than decrease. So the wealth thus amassed has four sources of accumulation. One avoids normalizing. One avoids drunkenness, heedlessness, one avoids gambling, one, one cultivates wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome comradeship. There are the four things that lead to the welfare and peacefulness of a householder in this very life. Okay, so here the Buddha is sharing the things that deplete our wealth and the things that accumulate our wealth. And this goes along with some of the other teachings that he discusses as well. Here he's connecting it directly to the depletion and accumulation of wealth because as you see here the first one that he talks about that leads to depletion of wealth is womanizing and of course he's talking to a man so he's referring to it as womanizing but we can think of this from the third precept in the five precepts which is unchastity right going around sleeping with a lot of people and pursuing just sensual pleasures of the body through sexual contact. Whether it's a man or a woman, it's not relevant. What the Buddha is really referring to here is if we just go out pleasing the senses through sexual contact, going from partner to partner to partner without a loyal, committed relationship, which is what he teaches in the five precepts, then this is going to deplete our wealth. And we're going to find that because it's very expensive to go around and, and be involved with many different people and this will deplete our wealth and you may even find that there are certain sexual diseases and things like this that get experienced and because of that there are certain medical expenses associated with womanizing or sleeping around with a lot of different people so this is one source of depletion but then of course eliminating that from your practice where you're not doing that, but instead you're in a loyal, faithful, committed relationship, then that's going to help you accumulate wealth because you're not depleting the wealth over here through just trying to please the senses of the body, but instead you're just committed and faithful and loyal to one person, and that's going to help you in that person to develop wealth as you work together as a couple. The second one here is drunkenness or heedlessness using any kind of substances to cause heedlessness is going to deplete wealth because the mind is going to be unalert it's going to be unattentive it's going to make decisions that are not in its best interest 
when the mind is heedless, and this refers to the fifth precept as part of the five precepts, then you're more likely to have situations where you're killing other beings, where you're stealing, where you're having sexual misconduct, where you're lying, where you are practicing wrong view, practicing wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong action, and everything else. So first of all, in order to become drunken or heedless, there's a certain amount of expense that's just being wasted, putting substances into the body. But then you're going to find that you tend to make haphazard decisions that lead to unwholesome results when we pursue drunkenness or heedlessness. And therefore, if we avoid that, as the Buddha is providing suggestions here, then that's going to help us to accumulate wealth because we're not depleting our wealth through just wasting it on some substances that create heedlessness. Gambling is the same because when we gamble, we essentially are just throwing our money out into the street and just hoping that there's some kind of return. It's just a game of chance in order to try to get some more money. But oftentimes gambling results in significant difficulties, which we're going to see in the next chapter. The Buddha is going to go through these and others and talk about what the real problem is and what are you going to really encounter if you are actually doing any of these things. So you're going to see where he talks about the problems that you will encounter if you're actually gambling. And the same thing if we have unwholesome friends, unwholesome companions, unwholesome comrades, we're going to experience more difficulties in our life because our mind's going to be influenced in a negative way. And we're going to be surrounding ourselves with people who are making decisions that aren't in the best interest of producing wholesome gamma. Unwholesome friendships, the Buddha is going to explain to you those types of relationships and what you'll see from people who are into unwholesome things. If you end up associating and being involved with people like this, then their decisions are going to affect you. Your Gamma, your decisions are your decisions. Your gamma can only be generated by you. But the decision that you're making here is to associate with unwholesome people. And that decision to associate with unwholesome people is going to affect you. And when I say unwholesome people, we're not looking down on people. We're not thinking that anyone's bad or good or anything like this. But it's all about the type of decisions that we make. If somebody is making decisions that are averse to the natural law of gamma, if they're killing, stealing, having sexual misconduct, lying, taking substances that cause heedlessness, and all these other aspects of these teachings that they're not practicing, then your association with them for those things, it's going to affect you. And my suggestion is for people to ensure that you're making friends with people who are at least practicing the five precepts. Even if you're living in a non-Buddhist country and people have no clue of what the five precepts are, most people have learned the five precepts growing up as a child without even realizing that that's what they were. You know, we were taught not to kill, not to steal, not to have sexual misconduct, not to lie, and not to take substances that cause heedlessness, from our caregivers, whether it was parents or siblings or aunts and uncles and grandparents and people like this, 
people have been teaching us those kind of things throughout our entire life. So you don't have to necessarily just make friends that are considering themselves Buddhist or even on the path to enlightenment, because there's plenty of people out there who practice what we would consider the five precepts without having ever read any of the words of the Buddha. But since you know what the five precepts are, as you're making friends with people, if you observe their practices in line with those, then you know that their decisions are going to be wholesome and they're going to be a positive influence for you. Whereas if you see that they're making decisions that are opposite of the five precepts, then those decisions can ultimately affect you. It's their decisions to do things like kill, steal, have sexual misconduct, lie, and take substances that cause heedlessness. That's their decisions. But your decision to be their friend and associate with them and traverse and go around in the world with them, that's your decision. And that's what is going to affect you is your decision to associate. It doesn't mean that we look down on people that aren't practicing the teachings. It doesn't mean that we think they're a bad person. We just know because of the wisdom of the Buddha that in associating with folks like that, in this particular case, the Buddha saying it's going to lead to a depletion of wealth, but you'll also find that it's going to affect your life practice and make it very difficult for you to attain enlightenment when you've got these unwholesome influences around you. But conversely, when you have wholesome friends around you that you've chosen to associate with, the Buddha talks here about how that's going to help you accumulate wealth and also I can share it's going to help you on this path to enlightenment because when you have wholesome friends it's going to lead to better opportunities in your life not just to be more positively influenced on the path to enlightenment but wholesome people are going to be into wholesome things and you're going to be able to accumulate more wealth because you're not depleting your wealth through unwholesome activities that can transpire when you have friends that are into unwholesome things. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Teacher David, I had a quick question. Um, you mentioned the five precepts. Um, is there any significance to being formally inducted into uh, um, following the five precepts or uh, as any significance to, as a household practitioner, to formally do anything um, to indicate that you are following the five precepts? You don't need to do that. Nowadays, they do have things that are like that. They do ceremonies and have certain rites and rituals and things like this that they do around acknowledging that you're going to now practice the five precepts. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, he didn't have anything like that. Um, it's only been afterwards that people have kind of invented those kind of things. And you know, if somebody decides to do that, it's completely their choice, but it's not a requirement. For some people, they feel like it kind of strengthens their resolve to go to a temple, to be part of some kind of ceremony where they're acknowledging that, okay, you're now going to practice the five precepts. But to me, that isn't needed whatsoever. Instead, what you could do with that time is really seek out a teacher, seek out resources, really dive into learning and practicing. This ceremony that people are doing, it's not going to produce anything beneficial if you don't have an actual teacher and you don't have the actual teachings to learn and practice. 
So I suggest that you just dedicate yourself to it quietly rather than looking for any kind of public recognition of having done so. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm, you're welcome. Any other questions? I'm not seeing any questions. Okay, so moving on to chapter 12. Bassam asked me to read this one, so I'll go ahead and read this one. This one's titled Six Ways of Wasting One Substance. When we're talking about one substance, what we're talking about is kind of like your vital energy, right? Like that vitality that an individual has of being able to produce wholesome things in the world. So Prior to this, the Buddha was talking about the four ways of depleting wealth and accumulating wealth. Well, here, this one is not just wealth, but it's kind of like your vital energy and the things that help you to produce wholesome benefits in the world. And he's going to go through six things. And some of these are similar to the ones that we just talked about with some additional ones here. And he's going to go into details and explaining to you if you practice any of these things that are going to waste your substance he explains to you the challenges that you're going to face and this is one of the situations where he does that he doesn't often explain what the difficulties are that you're going to encounter he oftentimes just explains to you okay here's the teachings here's what you should practice but here this is a a unique situation where he's going to share with you what you should practice and then if you practice one of these ways of wasting your substance, he's going to explain to you what that is going to cause in your life in terms of challenges. Remember, not as a way to scare you or fear you or shame you into practicing the teachings, but just to help you have wisdom to understand what you're going to encounter. And just like everything else, you shouldn't believe what he's sharing here. You can actually reflect on these things. If you've ever used drugs and alcohol, for example, and you see the things that the Buddha talks about here related to the use of substances that cause heedlessness, then you can reflect back on those days or even now today if you're still using substances and you can look and say, is the Buddha speaking the truth here? Did he really know what he was talking about when I was using drugs and alcohol or now that I am still using drugs and alcohol? Are these the things that I'm experiencing? And that's how you reflect on his teachings. And then you start practicing elimination of things like substances that cause heedlessness so that you can eliminate these challenges and difficulties that the Buddha is talking about here. So six ways of wasting one substance. Householder's son, in which are the six ways of wasting one substance that the noble disciple does not follow? One, addiction to strong drink and sloth-producing drugs, substances that cause heedlessness, is one way of wasting one's substance. Two, haunting the streets at unfitting times is one. Three, attending fairs is one. Four, being addicted to gambling is one. Five, keeping unwholesome company is one. Six, habitual idleness is one. Now he's going to go through each of the individual aspects of wasting one substance and share with you the challenges that you're going to face as a result if you end up continuing to do these things. Householder son, there are these six dangers attached to addiction to strong drink and sloth producing drugs, substances that cause heedlessness. One, present waste of money. Two, 
increased arguments. Three, liability to sickness. Four, loss of good name. Five, indecent exposure of one's person. Six, weakening of intellect or wisdom. Householder son, there are these six dangers attached to haunting the streets at unfitting times. One, one is defenseless and without protection. Two, and so are one's wife or life partner and children. Three, and so is one's property. Four, one is suspected of crimes. Five, false reports are pinned on one. Six, one encounters all sorts of unpleasantness. Householder's son, there are these six dangers attached to frequenting fairs. One is always thinking. Now remember, frequenting fairs is essentially entertainment. During the lifetime of the Buddha, that's how they entertain themselves as they went to festivals and fairs. So here, he's going to share with you essentially how once the mind is indulging in entertainment, it's then going to have craving and continuously look for where's the next entertainment, right? And I talked in our last class about how you can strip out entertainment from your life for a period of time. And then after the mind has eliminated any craving, desire, attachment, covering up any boredom or loneliness, then you can start to introduce entertainment back into your life but an ordained practitioner will have eliminated entertainment a hundred percent and they won't actually be involved in any entertainment whatsoever during their entire life as they're ordained and here's the reason why he says that if you essentially indulge in entertainment one is always thinking or this is craving desiring attachment where is their dance where is their singing? Where are they playing music? Where are they reciting? Where is their hand clapping? Where are the drums, right? This is the mind just constantly looking. Where can I go to get entertainment as a craving, desire, attachment? And that's why you would like to purge it from your practice for a period of time, maybe three months, six months, a year, and observe that the mind can still maintain its contentedness and then you can gradually kind of introduce it back in but the mind is not looking for it in order to cover up the boredom and loneliness but you maybe you just have a son or a daughter or a life partner or friends that are going out for a movie and you'd like to come along and join in company and be friends with them but you can be just as content with one movie versus another movie your real interest is to spend time with people not to indulge in any particular type of entertainment necessarily. Householder's son, there are these six dangers attached to gambling. One, the winner makes enemies. Two, the loser regrets his loss. Three, one wastes one's present wealth. Four, one's word is not trusted in the community. Five, one is despised by one's friends and companions. Six, one is not in demand for marriage because a gambler cannot afford to maintain a wife or a life partner. Householder's son, there are these six dangers attached to keeping unwholesome company. Now these are the types of people that the Buddha is saying these are kind of unwholesome things. And if you observe that 
people that you're involved with are fitting one of these categories, it wouldn't be wise to maintain friendships with them because it's going to affect you. One, any gambler. Two, any glutton. Three, any drunkard. Four, any cheat. Five, any trickster. Six, any bully is his friend, his companion. So these are the types of people that the Buddha says that we should look to ensure we're not involving in our life on a consistent ongoing basis as a close friend or a companion. And then additionally, what I shared with you previous is that you should look at the five precepts. That's a real easy way to observe whether people are making wholesome decisions or not. Again, not to judge them, but just to ensure you're making a wise decision about who to involve in your life. And then the last one here, the Buddha talks about idleness, which is essentially like being inactive, unmotivated, without enthusiasm. Essentially, someone who's not practicing the enlightenment factor of energy. If you remember that enlightenment factor of energy is all about having the willingness to do something, being motivated and having enthusiasm. Because if you're idle, you're just kind of sluggish and sitting around, moping around, not really involved in producing beneficial outcomes for your life and the people around you, then you're going to be affected by that. So it's important that you don't practice this idleness, but instead you practice this enlightenment factor of energy, but finding that middle where you can take rest and you can relax, but at the same time you apply effort and energy to producing beneficial outcomes for your life and those around you. So if somebody was idle, then the Buddha is saying, okay, they're kind of complacent, essentially. And then this person, if you're practicing in this way, is going to be thinking, oh, it's too cold, one does not work. Thinking it's too hot, one does not work. Thinking it's too early, one does not work. Thinking it's too late, one does not work. Thinking I'm too hungry, one does not work. Thinking I'm too full, one does not work. Essentially, the mind in order to become idle, it puts excuse after excuse after excuse in front of it, and it just kind of inhibits itself from actually doing anything that would produce any beneficial results. So if you eliminate idleness from your life, then you'll see that you won't be wasting your substance. You'll have this vitality, this energy, that you'll be applying effort towards beneficial results that help you and your family and you can progress and move your life forward. As you progress on this path, you might notice that when you were off this path, you had a lot of activity. Because of craving, desire, attachment, this will oftentimes motivate people to be very active. And sometimes people can actually be off the path and very sluggish as well. This is the mind being not in the middle, but it's on either side. But if you notice that in the past, you've had a lot of craving, desire, attachment, and that's been the real motivating factors in your life that pushed you and pushed you and pushed you in order to accomplish certain things. As you start working on this path to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, those things that once motivated you at one point, you might notice that the mind swings to the other side and starts to become a bit idle. And that's kind of normal that the mind does that because it's kind of letting go over here of the craving, desire, attachment, and it kind of swings to the other side. Well, if you notice that, that's when you've got to work to apply that 
enlightenment factor of energy and move the mind to the middle where you're not idle, but instead you have a willingness to do something. There's motivation, there's enthusiasm to become active and ensure that you are active. But then finding that middle also includes finding time to rest and relax as well and see that as a productive thing in your life. What questions do you have on this chapter, chapter 12? I'm not seeing any questions on Zoom, teacher. Okay, Nick, your chapter 13? Okay. Oh, it was uh, Miranda's turn. Okay. Um, five chords of sensual pleasure. To monks, there are these five chords of sensual pleasure. What are the five? One, forms recognizable by the eye that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire, and provocative of craving. Two, sounds recognizable by the ear that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire, and provocative of craving. Three, odors recognizable by the nose that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire, and provocative of craving. Four, flavors recognizable by the tongue that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire, and provocative of craving. Five, physical objects recognizable by the body that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire, and provocative of craving. These are the five chords of sensual pleasure. As to those ascetics and Brahmins who are tied to these five chords of sensual pleasure, obsessed with them or completely committed to them, and who use them without seeing the danger in them or understanding the escape from them, it may be understood of them. They have met with calamity, met with disaster, the evil one who may, may do with them as he likes. Suppose a forest deer who is bound laid down on a heap of traps. It might be understood of him, he has met with calamity, met with disaster. The hunter can do with him as he likes, and when the hunter comes, he cannot go where he wants. As to those ascetics and Brahmins who are not tied to these five cores of sensual pleasure, who are not obsessed with them or completely committed to them, and who use them, seeing the danger in them and understanding the escape from them, it may be understood of them, they have not met with calamity, not met with disaster, the evil one cannot do with them as he likes. Suppose a forest deer who was unbound lay down on a heap of traps. It might be understood of him. He has not met with calamity, not met with disaster. The hunter cannot do with him as he likes, and when the hunter comes, he can go where he wants. Suppose a forest deer is wandering in the forest wilds. He walks without fear, stands without fear, sits without fear, lies down without fear. Why is that? Because he is out of the hunter's range. So too, quite distant from sense desires, distant from unwholesome mental states, <clears throat> enters and resides in the first jhana, which is thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy. This monk is said to have blindfolded Mara, to have become invisible to the evil one by depriving Mara's eye of its opportunity. This follows with the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana. The space is infinite, the consciousness is infinite, the base of nothingness, the base of neither perception nor non-perception, the discourses are identical, except for the reference to each attainment. Again, by completely surmounting the base of neither perception nor non-perception, a monk enters upon and resides in the elimination of perception and feeling, and his taints are destroyed by his seeing with wisdom. This monk is said to have blindfolded Mara, 
to have become invisible to the evil one by depriving Mara's eye of its opportunity and to have crossed beyond attachment to the world. He walks without fear, stands without fear, sits without fear, lies down without fear. Why is that? Because he is out of the evil one's range. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So here, this is connecting back to the six sense bases. Just to kind of refresh your guys' memory on that and talk about it a little bit. We're going to be discussing this in volume nine. The whole volume nine is all about the six sense bases. But just to kind of refresh you guys a bit, there's six internal sense bases. This is the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. These are the internal sense bases or the organs. Then there's the six external sense bases. These are the things that we experience through the six internal sense bases. There's form, sounds, odor, flavors, physical objects, and mental objects. So the eyes experience forms. The ears experience sounds. The nose experience odors. The tongue experiences flavors. The body experiences physical objects. And the mind experiences mental objects. These are the six internal and external sense bases. What the five chords of central pleasures are, are these are the first five sense bases where the mind has craving desire attachment. It's the actual craving desire attachment, not the sense base itself, but it's how the mind is longing for pleasant feelings through the five of the six sense bases for things like forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects. And what the Buddha is saying here is that when a being has certain forms recognizable by the eye that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with central desire, that's that fetter of central desire, that fourth fetter, that pollution of mind, that defilement, that taint, and provocative of craving. So that's the actual cord. So you can think about the eye and then there's the form, there's this cord between them, which is the craving, where through the eyes, the mind is longing with a strong eagerness for particular forms. It wants agreeable, likable forms. So when you see certain pleasant things with the eyes, ah, the mind likes that. It creates pleasant feelings in the mind where the mind continues to enjoy and welcome in these desired, agreeable, likable forms. But the problem with that is, is then the mind starts holding on to it and clinging to it, wanting that to be permanent. And now when the mind sees something that's undesirable, disagreeable, and unlikable, now the mind experiences painful feelings because of that. And we can go through the same thing. When you hear certain sounds, if there is this cord or this craving desire attachment, the mind hears a certain sound through the ear that is wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable. And now because of that craving, having pleasant feelings arise in the mind, when the mind hears disagreeable sounds, now it experiences painful feelings, right? So if you hear music 
that you really enjoy and you hear your neighbor playing it. Oh, you might be in a good mood and it feels really good. But then your other neighbor plays some music that you don't like and now you're angry, you're frustrated, you're irritated. Maybe it even comes into your intentions, your speech and your actions and you cause harm in the world because of this desire for pleasant feelings and agreeable sounds. Now when the mind hears disagreeable sounds, it produces unskillful conduct. And each of these five sense bases are connected with these chords and you have to recognize that so that when you see that the mind is longing with a strong eagerness for these pleasant feelings through these five particular sense bases you can then cut that off and let it go not allowing the mind to long or yearn with a strong eagerness through these sense bases because as long as it's doing that it's welcoming and inviting in these agreeable desirable forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects, then when there's something that's disagreeable to the mind, it's going to encounter and experience painful feelings. And the Buddha connects this to a little bit of a simile where he's talking about a deer in the forest who lays down in a trap and it can't move, right? And that's essentially what happens if you have these five cords of sensual pleasure It's like a trap. It's binding you into this cycle of rebirth. It's binding you into this continuous cycle of discontentedness because you're not liberated from this craving, desire, attachment where the mind is longing for pleasant feelings through these senses. And once you liberate the mind from this craving, desire, attachment, this longing and yearning, then the mind can experience this freedom where you're still going to see things, you're still going to hear things, you're still going to smell things, still taste flavors, you're still going to experience bodily contact with certain physical objects, but you no longer will think of them as agreeable and disagreeable. It's just this impermanent experience. And when you realize that bad odor that comes to the nose, you don't think of it as a bad odor anymore. You just know that it's an impermanent experience and the mind doesn't experience painful feelings because of it. Or when you experience certain pleasant odors and you're just like, oh wow, that smells really good. But you train the mind not to cling to it and not to hold on to it because you know that that's an impermanent experience as well. Because if you allow the mind to hold on to that pleasantness, that agreeable smell, then it's only a matter of time before there's some disagreeable smell or odor that comes into the senses And then if you allow that to happen, then the mind's going to be discontent as that happens. And the Buddha talks about the evil one or Mara. This is that entity that's interested in influencing unskillful and harmful conduct. One who's tied to the sensual pleasures and has these five cores of sensual pleasures. The Buddha talks about how Mara can essentially do anything they want with you because you're not liberated. But then once you liberate the mind from these cords, from this craving, desire, attachment for pleasantness through these five senses, then the Buddha says, okay, now you're unbound. You can't be trapped. You can't meet with disaster. The hunter can't do what he would like with you. Essentially, Mara is blindfolded. Mara cannot affect you once you get into the first jhana, 
when the mind practices the Eightfold Path, getting to the point where it's experiencing the jhanas, even Mara, when Mara tries to influence you in a negative way for unskillful behavior, or unskillful conduct, the mind can't be influenced in a negative way because you've seen too much truth and the mind has ascended to this first attainment of the first jhana. And once that's happened, Mara can no longer affect you. From the jhanas, though, these aren't permanent. The mind can backslide out of those jhanas if a person doesn't continue to pursue and develop their practice. Once you get to the first stage of enlightenment, where the jhanas are the preliminary phases the mind goes through before reaching the first stage of enlightenment. But once you get to that first stage of enlightenment, the mind can't backslide from there. Not only have you already moved past Mara and blindfolded Mara from reaching these jhanas, but once you're in the first stage of enlightenment, then from that point, your mind won't backslide. That's why even if you die as a stream enterer, there's a maximum of seven rebirths that the mind will eventually get to enlightenment. It's only a matter of time at that point. But you still have to learn. You still have to reflect. You still have to practice. There's no autopilot at that point. You still need to continue to pursue your practice. So that's what the Buddha is talking about here in chapter 13 with the five chords of central pleasure is being sure that you pay attention to this craving, desire, attachment and don't allow the mind to keep longing for pleasantness. And I can tell you that this is one of the most challenging things to eliminate from your practice. So don't feel guilty or shameful or so forth if these things are happening. Just recognize what it is and know that you need to gradually move through and move past this. And one of the things that you will observe is that you can eliminate your fears this way too, is that if the mind's no longer longing for pleasantness, then when it experiences certain things that it particularly wouldn't like to experience, then it won't experience painful feelings either. So you won't have that fear. So if I can use an example, sometimes people have fear for insects. If they see flowers or they see balloons, maybe they get all these pleasant feelings. But then when they see insects like ants or spiders or maybe like a snake or something like that, the mind then becomes displeased or experience painful feelings. Well, when your mind has eliminated this craving, desire, attachment for pleasant feelings through these senses, then when the mind encounters something that it would prefer not to encounter, then if there's no craving, desire, attachment there, then you see the snake, you see the spider, you see the ants or whatever insect is there, and the mind's unaffected by it. There's no fear, right? So this is one of the things the Buddha says at the end, where he says, you know, that a person who eliminates these five chords can essentially be without fear. And this is the reason why. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Teacher David, I thought the, um, uh, the way you explained it, when I saw your body language, you held up your hands, you said, I form, and then you drew the line with your hand, saying the chord, that, the chord actually uh, makes sense to me now. Um, so I understand that, like if you have a chord, well, that, that they're attached from A to B, that's the attachment. It fits, that, I just I just like to say that it was explained beautifully, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, keeping that in question, mind. Uh, how, 
I'm sorry. I was uh, said, yeah, just keep that in mind so that you'll you'll be able to uh, remember that. Yeah, that's a great way to remember it. It's a good visual for it. Let's go to Holly. She has her hand raised. Hi. Um, this is the first time I've ever um, been exposed to this teaching of Mara, and in this context. So my question is. Is the Buddha teaching us that this is an actual entity, like a being, or is this symbolic of the consciousness and what the consciousness does when we have craving? And if it is an actual being, how does that play into results of unwholesome karma or dhamma um, when we have unwholesome actions and that unwholesome karma is the result of that? How does that fit together? Sure. So, yes, this is an actual being. The Buddha talks about Mara trying to influence him during the time where he was working on attaining enlightenment and constantly tempting him and trying to persuade him away because this being Mara, the evil one, is looking to influence negativity, unwholesomeness. And having a Buddha arise in the world is not something that Mara would be interested in. And in other traditions, they might refer to this being as Satan or the devil, right? And this being is real. The being exists, always trying to influence unskillful conduct. But it's up to the individual practitioner to make the decision for themselves. This being cannot force you to do one thing or another but it can influence you to do that and this being is going to continue to do that so your gamma or the results of your decisions is always going to be as a result of your decisions but mara is quite powerful and can influence you in unwholesome ways and that's why the more wisdom that you have the more awakened that you become the more pollution that you eliminate from the mind Mara isn't able to influence you. So once that mind gets to that first jhana, it's developed the Eightfold Path quite extensively just to get to that first jhana. And that's why the Buddha says at that point, Mara can't influence you. You've blindfolded Mara because you're now practicing right view really well, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. In order to get to that first jhana, you would be practicing these things quite well. And at that point, even if Mara attempted to influence you in an unwholesome way, the practitioner isn't going to be influenced by it. Where prior to that, Mara can influence you, but it's still your decision choosing to take substances that cause heedlessness or have sexual misconduct. So we can't blame our decisions on Mara because Mara is not making the decisions, but we are. Any other questions? Okay. Um, yes, teacher. Uh, I'd like to ask Johnny if that answers his question. I'll read it. Is Mara to be seen as a real entity or as an archetype of representation or of representation of immortality? I'm just wondering if that answered Johnny's question. Yeah, one thing that I'll add to this for Johnny and the rest of you guys is essentially what we think of as hell and afflicted spirits. This is Mara's world, right? This is where Mara has beings and Mara is essentially trying to create hell on earth. And beings who are interested in attaining enlightenment are interested in walking towards the light and essentially creating a more heavenly earth, a more heavenly experience for their life. And these two 
you know, good and evil, right? That's kind of like what a lot of movies are about, a lot of what we see in the world. And while you may not have ever experienced Mara yourself, or perhaps you haven't been aware of Mara trying to influence you, I can tell you with 100% certainty that this being 100% exists. And not only have I seen Gautama Buddha talk about this, but I've had experiences myself with this being, and that's how I know that Mara 100% exists. But you don't have to be fearful of Mara. You don't have to be worried about Mara. All you need to do is focus on learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings. And that's where the mind moves closer and closer to the jhanas. And you will have essentially protected the mind from any kind of negative influence from Mara. Looks like Holly has a follow-up question, teacher. Sure. Um, my, this is this is just really new for me, and it might be better for you and I to discuss it privately and not in this class. Um, but is this is this being a, considered a permanent being? Like, is it something that is forever, or is it along with the realms? I don't know. And I'm curious about the creation of it and how this all became because I'm this is brand new for me. So we can discuss it offline if we need to. No, we can discuss it here. I'm sure other people have similar questions. There is no being that is permanent. All beings are impermanent, including Mara and including God as well. These beings are all impermanent. They're all part of the cycle of rebirth. But the lifespan of Mara is a lot longer than a human, for example. So that's why Mara continues to exist over multiple generations and multiple lifetimes. Yes, the Buddha doesn't talk about how Mara was created, but this being 100% exists. The being is going to continually try to influence people in unskillful ways. But again, you don't have to be worried. You don't have to be fearful because as long as you're learning and practicing these teachings, that's what's moving your mind to be protected from any kind of negative influences from this being. And adding to something that we've been talking about, uh, we've been talking about unwholesome friends, unwholesome companions, unwholesome comrades as part of the other chapters that we've been reading. These human beings who are unwholesome, they're being heavily influenced by Mara. This is one of the reasons why you wouldn't be interested in having unwholesome friends and associates because they're being heavily influenced and they're more susceptible to that and they're making decisions in their life to go down that path of unwholesomeness. So if you're looking to walk towards wholesome things, it would be unwise for you to put yourself in a situation where you're around a bunch of people who are being you know, negatively influenced by Mara and their decisions are in that direction of darkness rather than walking towards the light. I believe Manal has a question, teacher. Mm-hmm. Yes, teacher David, that's a sad uh, thought. Um, how would the mind recognize if it is finding an agreeable form through the eyes as a form of desire? If it's uh, desire and you're looking for agreeable forms, you're going to notice pleasant feelings arising in the mind. You're going to notice that happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, and it's going to be temporary. So there's going to be an arising of pleasant feelings. Those pleasant feelings are going to change and slowly fade away. And this is how you know there's craving, desire, attachment there through any of these sense bases. So wherever you notice that arising of pleasant feelings, you cut it off and let it go. 
And just like those bodily sensations that are part of the four foundations of mindfulness alert you to any painful feelings that are arising, like anger or frustration, you can feel those bodily sensations and you need to get more and more aware of those. You also need to become aware of the bodily sensations associated with pleasant feelings as well. Because if you can cut it off there as the mind chasing pleasant feelings, then you'll never get to any kind of painful feelings. So that's how you'll know because there'll be an arising of pleasant feelings. And before those feelings even arise, you'll first experience the bodily sensations. And that's where you'd like to be more mindful and aware so that you can cut them off and let them go there as a bodily sensation. And they never come into the feelings in the mind. And if you're able to do that, then more and more you'll diminish and eliminate the craving desire attachment and the mind will be then trained to no longer chase after the objects of its affection through these sense bases. Right. Um, were you referring to dependent origination just right now when you trace it back to the first um, signal or sense and um, peeling it back? Dependent origination is that ultimate truth that is really at play with all of this stuff. Everything that we're talking about ultimately connects to dependent origination in one way or another. So if you understand the progression of how the mind functions, that's essentially what dependent origination is talking about is the cycle of rebirth and the whole progression of discontentedness. But I kind of brought it into just talking about the four foundations of mindfulness in the six sense bases. Okay, so um, just related more to uh, the senses, the six sense bases, um, I am trying to investigate whether um, whenever the mind sees an agreeable form, whether it is um, the origin of that is from a place of uh, just a a worldly appreciation. I am so more specifically, uh, if I observe something in nature um, and something which is not touched by humans, something that's in its sort of purest form, um, and usually it's something that's in, in nature. Whenever I observe something, and it it doesn't it doesn't need to be that I'm the eyes or, or the mind is looking for that, but whenever the eyes pass along and sees something of that type, then it finds that form agreeable, and and I find that it's deeply connected to um, also an agreeable mental thought um, that the mind is processing, which is just this infinite space and God and um, everything in nature being um, again in a, in a very pure form. So there's a, there is a link that I see. I am trying to just find out whether or not this is something that, um, that I should work on more um, or if it's something that it's just the mind in awe of the infinite and uh, the unexplainable, the presence of everything outside of the mind. So, um, and sometimes um, I think of this as if, am I attached to it? Am I desiring that those uh, agreeable form through the eyes or 
the mental object through the mind. I asked myself and I investigated that further. So what I what I imagined was that if I was shopping, this is a, an analogy that I'm just quickly drawing up. Uh, if I was shopping in an aisle um, in, a, in a supermarket and I was seeing everything in one aisle, would I be, uh, would the eyes gravitate towards one thing or would I just keep moving on? So basically what I see outside of myself, mainly in nature, is just that, that when I do see it, I just appreciate it and I move on. It's not that I'm necessarily stuck there and I'm not necessarily craving it or longing it or void of that, I'm not disagreeable or discontent. So my question to you is how, how deeply should I analyze this? Um, and is this agreeable form through the eyes which, I, which the mind observes ultimately still a form of um, desire? The key thing that you said there is that when you observe something, then you observe it, enjoy it, and then you move on. That's how you know that there's no particular chord in that particular situation. So if you're able to observe something, either through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, and physical objects on the body, and then you can move on, then you know that there's a good chance that there's not craving, desire, attachment there. But you still have to watch over the mind and see if there's any pleasant feelings or painful feelings that arise. Central desire, that fetter of central desire, doesn't get eliminated until the third stage of enlightenment. So if you're not in the third stage of enlightenment, you can guarantee that there's going to be these cords of central pleasure throughout these sense bases. I don't ever suggest anybody assume that these cores of central pleasure have been eliminated until the mind is 100% enlightened where you're no longer experiencing any discontentedness for like a year or two at least. And then at that point, you know, okay, I haven't experienced any discontentedness for a year or two. And you can be pretty sure that these five cores of central pleasure have been eliminated. So while it's good that you're looking at this, you don't want to overthink it, but you also don't want to assume that they're gone either. But the key thing that you said there is you recognize a certain form, you enjoy it, appreciate it, and then you move on. And that's a good indication that the mind in that particular situation isn't craving or desiring any particular thing. So would the enlightened mind acknowledge something that is agreeable? An enlightened mind isn't looking at things as agreeable or disagreeable. Those have been trained away from the mind. It's just impermanent experiences. But an enlightened mind might look at a view and say, oh, wow, that's such a beautiful view. Look at those mountains. Look at the clouds. It's so beautiful. And then that's it. But when the rain comes in and it starts raining, their mind's not going to be like, oh, man, it's raining. Why is it raining? The sun's gone. Ah, right? That's what an unenlightened mind, untrained mind is going to do. An enlightened mind understands like, oh, look, it's raining. It's raining out there. Interesting. You know, they're just unaffected by what's going on. So they're not going to look at it as agreeable or disagreeable. It's just an impermanent experience that's happening. And the mind's not going to latch on and create any pleasant feelings or painful feelings as a result of these impermanent experiences that are happening around us. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. That's all the questions for Zoom, teacher. Okay, so let's go on to chapter 14.
this five factors of well-spoken speech. Let's go ahead and read it, and then I'll just open up for questions because we've talked about this quite extensively in the group learning program, and I have a feeling you guys have a really good understanding of this, but let's just, for completeness, have somebody read it, and then I'll just open up for questions. Five factors of well-spoken speech. Not possessing five factors, speech is well-spoken, not badly spoken. It is blameless and beyond reproach, disapproval by the wise. What five? One, it is spoken at the proper time. Two, what is said is true. Three, it is spoken gently. Four, what is said is beneficial. Five, it is spoken with a mind of loving kindness. Possessing these five factors, speech is well-spoken, not badly spoken. It is blameless and beyond reproach by the wise. Okay, so I would like to just share with you before you ask questions, is as you see here, it's called the five factors of well-spoken speech. And here I've bolded the individual five factors. But in addition to the five factors, Look at this word blameless that the Buddha uses. Ensure that not only are you speaking with the five factors of well-spoken speech, but you ensure that your speech is blameless. That's really important. Okay. What questions do you guys have on this, if any? And then Miranda has her hand raised. Um, regarding speaking at the proper time, and in your notes, you had gone into this a little bit more. Um, observing the mental state of the other person. How should we go about this with others who are just kind of always looking for a fight, but who we have to deal with? Is there a way that, I'm sure using skillful speech as we get better and better with right speech would help, but how do we go about speaking with someone like that? You know, what you learn from this path by moving your mind closer and closer to enlightenment is you start to understand the unenlightened mind very well. That when there's impermanence, the unenlightened mind is going to not like that and it's going to experience painful feelings. So being very understanding of the topic that you need to discuss is really important is that if you need to discuss, let's just say, I'm going to make up a story, Miranda. Let's just say you and your partner were living in a house and you've got a new job and your new job is now requiring you to move 500 miles away. And you've got to talk to your partner and say, hey, I've got this great opportunity for this new job at my workplace, but it's going to require this move. And if you know that your partner mind isn't practicing these teachings and that move represents impermanence for them, then that's something that you need to take into account is that a person's mind isn't going to like that impermanence and you've got to find the appropriate time to talk. And one of the things that you might try is you might kind of knowing this topic that you need to discuss with them and there's no urgency to talk about it, but over the next couple of weeks you need to, you might try to kind of probe a little bit and kind of prepare them, right? So if you know that you're looking at this move and taking on this new job, you might share after a day or two, so life partner, you know, what do you think about living here? Is this a place where you really enjoy living or would you ever consider moving, right? You're not talking about moving yet. 
you're just saying, hey, you know, what are your thoughts? Do you enjoy living here? Is this a place you plan to be for a really long time? Or have you ever thought about actually moving someday? Without ever telling them what your thoughts are and what you're interested in, you can kind of probe over the course of multiple days and ask questions and kind of see where they're at with things. And if they are like, oh, I love living here so much, I can see myself dying here. I'm never moving from here. Okay, you see their minds craving permanence there, and you're going to have to really kind of introduce this gradually. And then you might follow that up a couple of days later. You know, if a situation came up where I was offered a better job and a higher salary, I know three days ago you mentioned that you'd love to live here long term, but would you ever be interested in perhaps considering to move to another place if it means that we'd be able to have a higher income as part of that? So sometimes you have to kind of, for someone whose mind is argumentative like you're talking about, there's lots of defilement there. So there's going to be a lot of craving, there's going to be a lot of anger, and there's going to be a lot of ignorance or unknowing of true reality. So you kind of have to soften up the mind a bit with a little bit of probing questions over the course of multiple days in order for them to kind of not be blindsided by you just coming home and saying, all right, we need to move. I got this new job, you know, and the next month we need to sell our house and get out of here. Huh? <laughs> it's kind of like driving down the road. If somebody just comes out of your blind spot, it really shocks you. And you're kind of like, whoa, where did that come from? So what you'd like to do is kind of prepare the person's mind a bit. And then even with that, you have to understand and not have expectations that everything's going to just go smooth with the conversation but realize that you're having to walk this person through some impermanence that their mind isn't going to be comfortable with. And this is not only part of well-spoken speech, but this is also part of your practice of loving kindness and compassion, that you know this being is not on the path. They don't understand that their mind is polluted. They don't understand even impermanence, the very first thing about these teachings. And now with your mind being more wise, you can now skillfully slowly, gradually kind of introduce these things and help to ease some of their tension and pressure that they're putting on their self whenever some impermanence comes their way. Okay, thank you, sir. You're welcome. I'll say this too about speech is, I think speech is one of the most amazing things to work with. And a lot of it comes through trial and error. And the more that you know somebody, the more you live side by side with somebody, the more you understand a person's mind, the more skillful you can be at speaking to them in a way that, that really helps. Doesn't guarantee success, but you know, someone that you are close with, you'll tend to know their mind better and be able to more easily be skillful in talking with them. Where someone who's a stranger, it's a little bit harder because you don't know their mind as well. But the more that you understand your own mind through this path, you'll start to develop the ability to understand other people's minds as well. You'll know what their cravings are. You'll know what their attachments are. You'll know the things that arise anger in their mind. Not that you have to walk around on eggshells or be fearful, but just knowing those things, you kind of know where the landmines are and you can kind of walk around them in the conversation and get to the ultimate goal. All right, thank you, sir. You're welcome. All right, so should we move on to the next chapter? We can. It's, it's Johnny's turn. Sure. This is another one that we've studied in the previous book, 
and we'll just have Johnny read it. And then if you guys have questions, I'll accept any questions that you guys have. The Tagata's speech. So too, Prince. One such speech as the Tagata knows to be untrue, incorrect, and unbeneficial, and which is also unwelcome and disagreeable to others, such speech the Tagata does not speak. Such speech as the Tathagata knows to be true and correct, but unbeneficial, and which is also unwelcome and disagreeable to others. Such speech the Tathagata does not speak. Such speech as the Tathagata knows to be true, correct, and beneficial, but which is unwelcome and disagreeable to others. The Tathagata knows the time to use such speech. Such speech as the Tathagata knows to be untrue, incorrect and unbeneficial, but which is unwelcome and agreeable to others, such speech the Tagata does not speak. Such speech as the Tagata knows to be true and correct but unbeneficial, and which is unwel and which is welcome and agreeable to others, such speech the Tagata does not speak. Such speech as the Tagata knows to be true, correct, and beneficial, and which is welcome and agreeable to others, the Tathagata knows the time to use such speech. Why is that? Because the Tathagata has compassion for all beings. So this is what we were just talking about, where I was talking about understanding the mind of the other person, and that's a practice of loving kindness and compassion, which is what the Buddha is sharing here, is that knowing which speech is unwelcomed and disagreeable so if you're already practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech, then what it really comes down to is making sure that you know what you're about to share with somebody is either unwelcomed and disagreeable or welcomed and agreeable. And if you are able to start developing that ability with people that you interact with on a regular basis, you'll find that you'll be able to pick the proper time to speak much more readily and you'll have better success that way. If you don't have craving, desire, attachment to hurry up and talk and hurry up and get out what you want to share, if you don't have that want and that expectation, if you can restrain the mind and realize that, okay, if I have this conversation today or I have it three days or five days or 10 days from now, it's still fine. It's not a pressing issue. Then with you having more mental discipline, now you can choose when's the appropriate time for me to have this conversation. So when you recognize and get rid of any kind of craving, desire, attachment, and you can have this built-in mental discipline, now you can more skillfully work with this individual and in sharing what it is that you need to share. Of course, you're always going to be sharing things that are true, correct, and beneficial, but then it comes down to, is this gonna be unwelcomed and disagreeable or welcomed and agreeable? And then finding the right time to share that that's really key here. Any questions on this chapter? Teacher, I'm not seeing any questions. Um, I'd just like to say that uh, these chapters have, you know, uh, come into my life really right at the right time. This is what we're working on, as you know. This chapter, my takeaway, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, basically in addition to the five factors of well-spoken speech, um, the Buddha is saying, always be honest, be compassionate, be prioritized and organized with your speech, never use a white lie, 
and be non-biased and fair when you, when, when you speak. That's how I would sum up these six things as characteristics. Those are all things that are important to speak about. I wouldn't necessarily agree that's what he's sharing here, but all those things that you just said will lead to wholesome results for sure. Oh, I agree, Teacher David. And I was just saying that uh, I think those are the characteristics. That's how I read it. And basically, in these six things, he tells you exactly how to do it. Uh, I didn't mean to take away from that. Oh, no, I didn't think you did. Um, but again, back to what I was sharing earlier with speech, there's a lot of trial and error here. And this is where your gamma, gamma is the most unbiased teacher. So if you're speaking and you're having conversations with people and they're regularly erupting into arguments, then you've got to, rather than blame that on the other person, is always look at your own speech. Always look at how you can improve. Even if there's like 1% of improvement that you can make in a given situation, always look at that. So if you're noticing that you're having challenges talking with somebody, anyone in your life, whether it's a boss, a friend, an employee, a friend, a, a relative, a, a life partner, or an ex-life partner, all of these situations presents a lot of challenges for the mind and there's a lot of trial and error. And as you see that you're struggling to have conversations in any relationship, just always look at what can I do to make this better? What can I do? And sometimes the best thing to do is actually pause the conversation and pick it up another time. If you're noticing either their mind or your mind is becoming a bit unraveled. And this is where the mental discipline is really important because if we don't have craving, desire, attachment, that gosh, I just gotta have this conversation and it's so important. And you kind of step back from that and realize that, hey, I can have this conversation three, five, 10 days from now too. Then you realize what the real goal is, is to get to the end of this conversation with peacefulness and harmony, not just to complete the conversation in a given time frame. And when we let go of any kind of craving, desire, attachment to do so, then that's where we can become much more skillful in the way that we communicate with others. This is a great teacher. Uh, I love the guidance on how to be skillful. Uh, I, I know I'm encountering this and uh, based on some of the questions others are as well, I imagine. It's one of the biggest challenges that we face in part of our practice is we can do a whole lot of harm through our speech, but we can also do a whole lot of wholesomeness through our speech too. And the more you work on this, the better you'll find that you'll have results in the world. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, the next person to read would be me. Okay. Chapter 16, four qualities of a wholesome person. Monks, one who possesses four qualities can be understood to be a wholesome person. What for? Here. Monks, a wholesome person who does not disclose the faults of others, even when asked about them. How much less than when not asked? But when he is asked about them, then, led on by questions, he speaks about the faults of others with gaps and omissions, not fully or in detail. It can be understood. This individual is a wholesome person. Again, a wholesome person discloses the virtues of others even when not asked about them. How much more than when asked? But when he is asked about them, then led on by questions, he speaks about the virtues of others without gaps and omissions, 
fully and in detail. It can be understood, this individual is a wholesome person. Number three, again, a wholesome person discloses his own faults, even when not asked about them. How much more than when asked? But when he is asked about them, then led on by questions, he speaks about his own faults without gaps and omissions, fully and in detail. It can be understood, this individual is a wholesome person. Number four, again, a wholesome person does not disclose his own virtues, even when asked about them. How much less than when not asked? But when he is asked about them, then let them by questions, he speaks about his own virtues with gaps and omissions, not fully or in detail. It can be understood. This individual is a wholesome person. One who possesses these four qualities can be understood as a wholesome person. Okay, a couple things to talk about here. You can look at this chapter as kind of an expansion upon wholesome friends, companions, associates, if you'd like. This is another way to kind of not only look at your own practice and making sure that you're practicing in this way, but also if you choose to be around others. And some things that you should be looking at here is essentially what the Buddha is talking about in these first two is he's talking about someone who's gossiping or not gossiping, right? So he's saying a wholesome person does not disclose the faults of others even when asked about them, right? But keep in mind that when you are in certain situations like an employment situation or educational situation, a boss or a supervisor or somebody might be asking you for your assessment of somebody. My suggestion there is to share some of the challenges that the person is facing, but do it in a wholesome way that's encouraging and uplifting and supportive so that at the same time that you're sharing some areas for a particular person to improve, you're also sharing some positive things about the individual as well. So what the Buddha is essentially saying here is we shouldn't be gossiping about anybody in any situation, but you will find yourself, depending on what environment you're in, that you might be asked by a supervisor or an educational institution will sometimes look for input from certain people in order to get recommendations and letters of reference and things like that. So the first one is, you know, the Buddha is talking about essentially not gossiping. And then the second one is talking about how a wholesome person would share, you know, these virtuous conduct and virtuous attributes of people. And that's what I was saying that even when you're in a situation where you're being asked to maybe give an assessment of a fellow employee or somebody in an educational situation, sure, maybe you share some challenges that they're facing, but at the same time, practice this second one where you talk about their virtues as well so that you're not just delivering to the boss or delivering to an educational institution the unwholesome things or the challenges or the negative things about somebody, but you're sharing all these positive things too. So you're giving some balanced advice. And then the other part here is in reference to yourself or your own individual that the Buddha is saying that a wholesome person, you know, would be willing to disclose their faults and share the things that they're facing and that they're being challenged with. And a wholesome person does not disclose their virtues because that would be boasting, 
That would be arrogance. That would be pride. That would be ego. And in doing so, then you're going to face unwholesome results as part of that. So if you go into a job interview, for example, you're going to need to share some of your virtues. That's part of it. And you're going to need to share that. But be sure you do it without any kind of arrogance, pride, or boasting, and that will produce the best results. So that's some things to think about here with this particular chapter. Any questions on the four qualities of a wholesome person? We have a question on Facebook. Uh, Rich asks, isn't it unwise to tell people that you are enlightened? Why did the Buddha often say he was the perfectly enlightened one? Yeah, so it's not advisable to share with anybody that you're enlightened. And you shouldn't even convince yourself that you're enlightened because that oftentimes takes the mind into complacency if you convince yourself you're enlightened. And oftentimes that also creates arrogance or pride. And if there's arrogance or pride, someone going around boasting about that they're enlightened, then you can be sure that they're not enlightened. The Buddha shared with people that he was the perfectly enlightened one, letting them know that he was in fact an actual Buddha. Why he did that, I'm not 100% sure other than for people to know with 100% certainty what a actual Buddha is. And I don't suspect that he went around, you know, blabbing about that at every chance that he got, but there were certain situations and certain environments where he needed to share that he was the perfectly enlightened one and make that known to people. But the way that he taught and the way that we all practice nowadays is not sharing with anybody if you feel that you're enlightened. And if somebody did share that they were enlightened, that's one of the best ways to know that someone's not enlightened. Because an enlightened being doesn't have a desire or a craving to go around and tell everyone that they're enlightened. They're just going to be benefiting and enjoying the peacefulness in their mind. They're not going to have this desire to go around and tell everybody because what are they looking for? Are they looking for admiration? Are they looking for someone to bow down to them because they're enlightened? Like, what are they looking for? What do they want? What are they trying to accomplish? And if they want something out of that, then their mind isn't enlightened. So an enlightened being knows that their mind is enlightened. I think that a very wise, highly enlightened person would never convince themselves that they actually are enlightened. That way they just continue to work towards enlightenment. And they certainly wouldn't be telling others that they're enlightened. But the Buddha is very different in the way that he taught because he was in and amongst many different people who were teaching. And every once in a while, he did share that, yes, he's the fully perfectly enlightened one. But his exact reasons of why he did that, I don't know at this point. But with all the respect and admiration that I have for him and his wisdom, he obviously had reasons for doing that which are beyond what we're talking about here. We know that the Buddha didn't have any arrogance, pride, ego, and those kind of things, but he did have a particular reason for sharing that he was the perfectly enlightened one. And uh, he's the one who knows those reasons, and I don't. Any other questions on this chapter? Not on Zoom, teacher. Okay. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is essentially the same as the one we just read. I'll just kind of go through this one briefly because it's just the opposite of what we just read. This one is talking about the four qualities of an unwholesome person. 
And essentially what the Buddha is sharing here is that an unwholesome person is going to disclose the faults of others, even when not asked, right? And that's essentially, you know, gossiping about other people. And then not talking about their own faults. They're going to have certain gaps and omissions about themselves. And an unwholesome person is not going to disclose the virtues of other people. They're going to be degrading and talking down, uh, diminishing other people. If you observe this about your own practice, then you've got to improve that. Don't be diminishing and degrading people, but look to uplift people and help people. And this will help you with back to Miranda's question about argumentative people. When you can kind of have these positive, wholesome, healthy relationships with people where you're not degrading them and diminishing them, then you're going to find that your speech is more welcomed, more warmly received by people. So if you're noticing this about yourself, you need to purge that. If you're noticing that about other people around you, you might have to think about how to maybe skillfully help them, or maybe you choose to kind of move on from the relationship because someone who's thinking this way and speaking this way is going to lead to unwholesome results. And then number three and four is the Buddha's talking about an unwholesome person does not disclose their own faults. Essentially, they're very secretive about those, having gaps and omissions and not really discussing what they're really challenged with. Maybe not be willing to admit like, okay, I don't know that. I don't know why the Buddha shared that he was the perfectly enlightened one in the times that he did. I just don't understand. I don't have that knowledge. So be willing to say, I don't know something when you don't know something. And then number four is an unwholesome person discloses his virtues. This is like someone who's boastful, someone who's arrogant, someone who's prideful, someone who says they're enlightened, right? This is an unwholesome person. If you're going around telling people, oh, I've attained the first jhana or I'm, I'm in the first stage of enlightenment and you're very boastful about where you are in your practice or certain skills that you have or certain abilities that you have, this is someone who the Buddha is saying is this is an unwholesome person because they're degrading others, they're diminishing others, but yet they're puffing themselves up is essentially what the Buddha is talking about here. Any questions on this chapter? All right, let's move on to the next chapter, chapter 18. This gets us into kind of another topic. Chapter 18 is no. Yes. Do not go by oral tradition. Come, Palamas, do not go only by oral tradition, by lineage of teaching, by hearsay, by a collection of scriptures, by logical reasoning, by presumed reasoning, by reasoned deep thinking, by the acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of a speaker, or because you think this person is our teacher. But when Palamas, you know for yourselves these things are unwholesome. These things are blameworthy, responsible for wrongdoing. These things are denounced by the wise. These things have accepted and undertaken, lead to harm and discontentment, discontentedness. Then you should abandon them. One, what do you think, Kalamas? When craving greed arises in a person, is it for his welfare or for his harm? For his harm, Venerable Sir. Kalamas, a craving, greedy person, overcome by a craving greed, with mind obsessed by it, destroys life, 
takes what is not given, transgresses with another's wife, and speaks falsehood, and he encourages others to do likewise, will that lead to his harm and discontentedness for a long time? Yes, Venerable Sir. Two, what do you think, Alamas, when anger, hatred arises in a person, is it for his welfare or for his harm? For his harm, Venerable Sir. Alamas, the person who is full of anger, hate, overcome by anger, hatred, with mind obsessed by it, destroys life, takes what is not given, transgresses with another's wife, and speaks falsehood. And he encourages others to do likewise. Will that lead to his harm and discontentment, discontentedness for a long time? Yes, Venerable Sir. Three, what do you think, Alamas, when ignorance, delusion, unknowing of true reality arises in a person, is it for his welfare or for his harm? For his harm, Venerable Sir. Kalamas, a person who is unwise, deluded, overcome by ignorance, delusion, unknowing of true reality, with mind obsessed by it, destroys life, takes what is not given, transgresses with another's wife, and speaks falsehood, and he encourages others to do likewise. Will that lead to his harm and discontentedness for a long time? Yes, Venerable Sir. Come, Kalamas, do not go only by oral tradition, by lineage of teaching, by hearsay, by a collection of scriptures, by logical reasoning, by presumed reasoning, by reason deep thinking, by the acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of a speaker, or because you think this person is our teacher. But when you know for yourself these things are wholesome, these things are blameless, not, res not responsible for wrongdoing, these things are praised by the wise, these things have accepted and undertaken lead to welfare and peacefulness, then you should live in accordance with them. Okay, thank you, Manal. So here, this is the Buddha essentially saying, investigate the teachings, right? And develop the ability to know what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. Not just follow this oral tradition, the lineage of teachers, hearsay, a collection of scriptures, like here, the, this book series that I'm sharing. Don't just go by logical reasoning or that inner reflection that I talk about or by presumed reasoning or reason deep thinking acceptance of a view don't go by just saying like okay this person's our teacher so we'll follow them and they seem like a competent speaker we're just going to believe what they say no the buddha is saying investigate investigate really examine the teachings reflect on them and then practice so you can see the truth for yourself and then you'll be able to develop your practice you need to be able to develop that aspect of your practice that I talk about, that this is an independent journey, right? This isn't you following anybody. There isn't any followers that are enlightened. There's no enlightened being who is a follower. You need to learn. You need to get seek guidance. You need to understand. You need to be humble. You need to be respectful. You need to listen to people and seek guidance from people who are further on this path than you. But you're not following any of these people, including me. You're learning, reflecting, and practicing to see the truth for yourself. And that's what the Buddha is talking about here. Questions on this chapter? All right, so we'll move on to chapter 19. This is a very short yes. chapter. <laughs> Al, you're up. Uh, to understand even a single sentence, Headman, because if they understand even a single sentence, that will that will lead 
to their welfare and peacefulness for a long time. Okay, thank you, Ali. So this is a single sentence that says, you know, to this leader of the village, that if beings understand even a single sentence of the Buddhist teachings, that will lead to their welfare and peacefulness for a long time. So even if somebody understands loving kindness, and all they do is practice loving kindness in this life, okay, that will lead to their welfare and peacefulness for a long time. Or even if they understand right speech, and that's it, they just understand to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, that will lead to their welfare and peacefulness for a long time. So the Buddha mentions this as part of a much longer discourse that you can reference there, SN 42.7. You can go back and see what he's discussing. But essentially, the Buddha shared these teachings knowing that every person who ever heard a sentence uttered from his mouth isn't going to become a dedicated student, right? Even a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha, not every single person who interacts with him isn't going to just magically become his long-term student. And every long-term student isn't going to necessarily attain enlightenment, even studying with an actual Buddha. But if even they just understand a single sentence, that's going to lead to their welfare and peacefulness for a long time. So a Buddha understands that, that their words and their teaching isn't going to be learned and practiced by every single person that they interact with because that would be permanence. And not every single student who studies with a Buddha is going to attain enlightenment because that would be permanence. So a Buddha just applies effort and energy to share the teachings into the world because they know that it's for the benefit and welfare and peacefulness for people for a very long time. Any questions on this chapter? Okay, so we'll go to the last chapter here, chapter 20. This is a chapter where the Buddha is teaching his son, Rahula. His son, Rahula, was the very first novice monk in he ordained a very early in life. I think it was around six years old or eight years old that he started learning as a novice with the Buddha. And he helped him progress in his life. And from what I understand, Rahula attained enlightenment during the lifetime of the Buddha, as well as his wife as well. Who's going to read this one? Awesome teacher. Okay. Well, a developed meditation that is like the air, water, fire, wind, and space. Raula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For, for when you develop meditation that is like the earth, a resin, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade the mind and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, exterminate, urine, saliva, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified annihilated and disgusted because of that. So too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arise in agreeable and disagreeable contexts, will not invade the mind and remain. Rahula, develop meditation that is like water. For when you develop meditation that is like water, arise in agreeable and disagreeable contexts, will not invade the mind and remain. Just as people wash clean things and dirty things, exterminate, urine, saliva, pus, and blood in water, and the water is not purified, humiliated, and disgusted, because the volumetation that is like water, 
for when you develop the edition that is by Kotor, a reason agreeable and disagreeable to texts would not invade the mind and remain. Rauda, develop the edition that is like fire. For when you develop the edition that is like fire, a reason agreeable and disagreeable to texts would not invade the mind and remain. Just as people burn clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, saliva, pus, and blood in fire, and the fire is not purified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that. So too, Raula, develop meditation that is like fire. For when you develop meditation that is like fire, a reason agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade the mind and remain. Raula, develop meditation that is like wind, the wind. For when you develop meditation that is like wind, a reason agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade the mind and remain. Just as the wind blows and clean things and dirty things, on experiment, urine, saliva, pus, blood, and the wind is not purified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that. So to Rabla, develop meditation that is like wind, for when you develop meditation that is like wind, a reason agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade the mind and remain. Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. For one, you develop meditation that is like space, a reason agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade the mind and remain. Just as space is not established anywhere, so too Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. For when you develop meditation that is like space, a reason agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade the mind and remain. Okay, thank you, Basum. So here the Buddha is talking about the four elements, earth, water, fire, and wind. And then there's this fifth one, which some people consider an element, some people don't. The space, or some people call it ether, is the absence of the other four elements. So that's why some people refer to it as a fifth element. Some people say, nope, it's not one of the four elements, it's this other thing which is the absence of the four elements. So depending on how you look at it, it's these five things that the Buddha is referring to here. And this relates back to what we were talking about earlier, about agreeable and disagreeable things that we see through the eyes, the experience through the ears, nose, tongue, body, and the mind, that the Buddha is saying that we should train the mind in meditation to be unaffected, by anything that's agreeable or disagreeable because if there is no agreeable or disagreeable in the mind then the mind won't be affected his illuminating language here is that the mind won't be horrified humiliated or disgusted just like the earth the water the fire the wind or space that if you train the mind to not find agreeable and disagreeable things through these six sense bases but you just recognize all of it is being impermanent, then the mind won't be grabbing on to these agreeable things. It won't be disgusted or repulsed by these disagreeable things. You'll just look at all of this as neither agreeable nor disagreeable, but just impermanent experiences. And it's just a matter of training the mind to be unaffected by any impermanent experiences that are happening around you. Any questions on this chapter? All right, looks like we don't have any questions. Any wrap-up questions or anything else that we need to be discussing, uh, whether it's these chapters or anything else? Teacher David, uh-huh. there is a question from chapter, seven, chapter 17. Okay. Um, from Holly. She writes, 
Could you give an example of how one can follow this in guiding children, warning them of unwholesome friends? If a friend of my kid exhibits unwholesome characteristics, my pointing this out would also make me an unwholesome person. How can I properly warn or advise my kids against unwholesome friendships? Yeah, in order to get to that point, you really have to be sure you're also teaching them all the other things too about impermanence, discontentedness, the four noble truths and things like this. But you can perhaps kind of talk a little bit about this without necessarily degrading the individual themselves or even naming an individual rather than, you know, observing any of your children's friends and calling them out by name and saying, you know, I don't think you should be associating with this person because of these particular things. You could just have a general conversation with your child about selecting wholesome friends and what those kind of qualities are that you don't necessarily have to call anyone out by name, but instead you can cast it as a discussion around just wholesome friends. And that way precludes you from having to name anyone in particular, but instead it's just part of your role as a parent that you're restraining your child from evil. If you remember that from last week as part of the Buddhist teachings is our job as a parent, one of them is to restrain our child from evil. So if you're noticing that your children are making choices to be around unwholesome people, then rather than call that person out because they're probably attached to that person and if you gossiped about them then yeah you're not practicing well you can talk more generally about guidance of how to select wholesome friends and that will keep things kind of above board and not have you dive down into the murkiness of having to talk in unwholesome ways about particular people that someone's attached to because that's that unwelcomed undesirable speech right that it's going to be unwelcomed and disagreeable to somebody if you talk about their friend in an unwholesome way so the way to do that is just don't talk about their friend don't talk about the details of the friend but kind of rise above it and have a generalized conversation about wholesome friends and wholesome companions and you may even decide to start the conversation with asking questions with your children about how do they choose who they would like to spend time with as friends. You know, get into their mind a bit to understand, you know, how do you choose your friends? What are the type of things that you look for? What do you think makes a wholesome relationship? And have those kind of discussions with them. And then also remember, just like I gave advice earlier, that sometimes if you're working on a particular topic with someone like a child, Remember that you can spread these things out over multiple conversations. So maybe like your first conversation with them is just asking them questions about how they make choices about what friends they would like to spend time with. And you have that conversation with them and just ask them questions and get a lot of insight into how they make decisions. And then step away from that conversation, think about what they said for a week or two, and then have another conversation where you're giving them some advice about how to make wholesome relationships. They're not necessarily going to connect the two conversations, but if you don't have craving desire attachment that I've got to get this done all in one conversation and you understand that it's a gradual progression of helping to train your children and give them the wisdom that they need, then with your mental discipline, you can 
break this up into multiple conversations and realize that that's what you're going to have to do. You can't sit down with a child or even anybody, even an adult, and have one conversation one time and done. You would like to work towards that. That would be the goal. If you're able to do that with your teacher, that's wonderful. But it's very rare that somebody can do that until they're up in those upper stages of enlightenment. It usually takes multiple conversations. So if you're wise enough to understand that all of this happens gradually, then just kind of commit yourself to multiple conversations. And if that's an area that you see your children need help with is about how to select wholesome friends, then break that up into multiple conversations spread over multiple periods of time. And that's going to have better influence and better results for you. And then starting it off with, you know, getting some insight into how they currently make their decisions, because that will better inform what you ultimately are going to teach them. Rather than us just rushing in and teaching them what everything that we have to say, it's better to ask questions and understand them first. Because the more you understand their mind, then back to what I was sharing with Miranda, if you know where the landmines are, you can skillfully walk around the landmines. Whereas if we just rush in and try to broadcast everything that we want to share, then that want, that desire, that craving is going to come through and we haven't really listened yet. So it's really wise to ask questions and listen. And then the more you understand the other person's mind, then it's just a matter of thinking about that, reflecting on that, and then skillfully talk with them and help guide them towards a better understanding. And then don't be attached to what the outcome is because they might reject everything you have to say but at least you're working in that direction. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. Again, very challenging, but very rewarding. A lot of trial and error in this area. A lot of trial and error. Any other questions? Not on Zoom, teacher. All right. Well, I guess I'll just end today's class by once again thanking you all for joining and inviting you to attend tomorrow's class if you like. It's the group learning program on Sunday where we're going to be in part three of our three-part series. We're going to be discussing the mental discipline aspect of the Eightfold Path. We're going to be discussing right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. That's what tomorrow's class will be. And if you can attend, great. If not, you can always take it in on the replay through YouTube or the podcast or in Facebook. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be in part three of our four-part series of breathing mindfulness meditation. For this class, next Saturday, we're going to be in the next 10 chapters, which is going to be chapters 21 through 30. So if you can read those chapters ahead of time, it will help you to prepare for the class and maybe come to class with some questions. I appreciate all of you guys that are volunteering to read the chapters. And for anybody who got skipped over again, I see, um, let's see, it might have been Holly or Nick that I skipped over your chapter. Just understand that that's part of not being attached to any one particular thing that occasionally we might need to skip a chapter here or there or just kind of summarize it. And if we don't hold on to wanting to read, then the mind can be perfectly content with, okay, I got skipped over, no big deal. So it wasn't that I'm skipping over you, it's just impermanence that we're not always going to be able to read every single chapter. 
So thank you all for your participation. Thank you all for your questions. Thank you for your dedication and diligence to learning and practicing these teachings. We'll see you in a future class. Have a lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.